0: You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. evening. How are we doing? Summer is in the air. So it is officially, we are giving you notice, you can start wearing shorts if you have good looking legs. Yes, Lee, you get to say twice as many amens if you start wearing shorts. All right, you guys, isn't it great to be here in the house of the Lord? It is. Shorts or no shorts? No, shorts or long pants? Yes. Let's turn our Bibles over to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to continue through our summer series on the parables of Christ. We looked at uh, the parable of the soils, uh, the sower and the seed. Last week we looked at, or the week before, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. So the parable of the soils are what they call that. So tonight we're going to look at um, two other parables the parable of the cloth and the parable of the wineskin. And We're going to pick up around verse 18 of Mark chapter 2, but in order to really understand what Jesus is, the point that he's trying to make with both of these parables, we need to understand the the, the background, like the events that lead up to his saying these two parables. Um, In in chapter 2, Jesus comes to the city of Capernaum, and um, Capernaum is a town that he did a lot of ministry in. Um, he was there in chapter one. When he was there in chapter one, um, he's doing all kinds of ministry. He's, he's liberating the demoniacs. He's uh, healing the sick with various diseases. In verse 28, it says that his fame, because of this spread throughout um, the region of the Galilee, all up, up in the north around the Sea of Galilee, which Capernaum is one of those particular uh, cities. When he, uh, Mark closes off chapter 1, Jesus is healing a man with leprosy. And that man ran around telling people what had happened. And and Jesus' popularity even skyrocketed even more. So when he comes back to Capernaum for um, the second time in chapter 2... The news gets out that he is back in town, and um, immediately he begins to minister. He goes to a small house. Um, we know the account. We remember the account of him you know, preaching, basically, in that, that smaller house in that city um, by the account of four men who brought their friend to basically be touched by Jesus. He was a layman. They brought him on a, on a bed, and there was no room to get in, so they carried him up on top of the house and, and pulled through the thatched roof and lowered him down. And um, there, of course, that set up the miracle of Jesus healing the man, but it also set up a message. And as Jesus performs his miracles, we must understand it's, it's, there's, there's a few reasons, but I think at the top of the list, um, it is one of the ways that he is displaying deity. It's one of the ways that he is proving that he is who he is claiming to be, that he's God. And the other is just to show the heart of God, to show the compassion of God. And so as uh, as he does this, we, we listen to that message and we see that he's claiming, he uses a messianic title, so he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming, you know, to be God. And he really wanted to inform the people as he was coming back into that town what his ministry was all about. And, and of course, there would be, this is is Israel, this is a a Jewish community, and many of them, of course, were steeped in Judaism. Um, By now, the religious leaders knew what Jesus was doing. They were starting to observe him as well. He wanted to communicate over and over and over who he was and why he came. He wanted them to connect the dots to him, that he is the Messiah, that he is God, and why he came, ultimately, to forgive sins, to provide atonement, to provide salvation. So all of what Jesus would would communicate in that house, you know, it, it it was demonstrated when he saw this man, you know, you know, lower down from the roof, and he would say, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> wow. When he said that, he had a captive audience. But he would say in verse 11, so it's one thing, he's, he's like made it very clear, only God can forgive sins, and they know that, he, they know what he's claiming there, but then he would even say, would go as far as to say, so that you might know, now just picture a a home study. It's packed. And here's this guy that's been healing people and doing all these miracles. He's back in town. Now he's making some pretty radical claims and you'd be listening. And he goes, in order that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to do that, to forgive sins, that I am God, I say to you, that paralyzed man, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Now, I'm walking through this methodically and slowly to draw us in. I, I, you, know, you know, the Gospels, if you see, you know, why do we have the Gospels? To help us fall in love with Jesus. Amen. To help us fall in love with him and let go of whatever else we were in love with that was keeping us from falling in love with him. And a lot of that in that setting was just religiosity, it was legalism. It was his traditions steeped in their religious practices. But the miracle validated his, his message. It says in verse 12 that immediately, you know, this paralyzed man, he arose, took up his bed and went away from all of them. So that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Then in verse 13, Mark mentions that Jesus, he began to teach. He just was in, in town and, and he'd been to teach a lot. He doesn't give a, any details about those particular settings from that house. Yes, yeah, some detail, but now he's like, this guy just was going around and he continued to teach. It was an active, you know, part of his ministry. Now, think of what he could have taught once he performed that miracle. Think of just the dots that he could have connected. Think of, of like just going around town and, and, and everything that the, that the Old Testament said about the Messiah. People, the Jews would have been all ears. He could have turned to Micah and just said, you know, you remember how it says that, the, that the, our Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Hey, hey so was I. That's yeah, an interesting thing. You know, that the, the Messiah was, was born of a virgin. Hey, so was I. He could have went into Isaiah chapter, you know, seven and said, man, here it talks about his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Emmanuel. You know, he could have just, he would have had a captive audience just to connect the dots as to who he was to the scriptures. He could have used this opportunity once he claimed to grant forgiveness and then raised this man up who was paralyzed to talk about how the scriptures said the Messiah would be the one that would forgive us of our sins. He could have taken them to Isaiah chapter 53 and, and talked about how the Messiah would be crucified. This is where atonement would come from, a sacrifice for our sins. That he would, he would die and be buried with the rich in Isaiah chapter 53, that he would be resurrected from the dead. All of these things he could have said I am here to fulfill those very things. And and he would have had a very captive audience. Don't know for sure what he taught. But the opportunity was there. Then from that setting, just picture just this amazing miracle, these amazing claims, and marks like he just began to teach. Then he enters another house. And the next house that he will enter will be The house of someone that the religious people would have liked went, stay away from that house. Never go in that house. Never talk to that man. That is a a vile person. It's all about what he can gain from you. He was a tax collector. His name was Levi. In verse 14, it says that Jesus had seen Levi in his customs office. And said, follow me. Levi did just that. In verse 15, Jesus and his disciples are in Levi's house. And they're celebrating. And they're they're eating. It says, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many. And they followed him. So I just want you to see... How, how things are progressing around the life and ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Definitely in that house where that miracle took place, wow, everybody would have been like, let me in, I want to see, I want part of that, may he touch me and anyone else that is in need. Different house, different audience. It says now, this is where we begin to see our parables begin to really take on form. Now, we begin to understand why he's going to say what he says about the cloth and the wineskins. And it begins in verse 16 where it says the scribes and the Pharisees. So I picture, I always picture them this way, the robed up guys, the puffed out chest guys, the kiss my ring guys. They, they see all of this. Jesus, his disciples, in a house with tax collectors and sinners. And they're like, they, they can't believe this. It, it kind of blows their mind. And that's hard for us to understand how, how Jesus would have been perceived as an everyday rabbi traveling around. As he would have walked into a city and went to a, you know, a synagogue... They would have recognized him as such and said, would you like today today's reading? Would you like today to do today's teaching? As we travel around and we go into some of these synagogues and you see the communities in Israel, you begin to understand how, how close in proximity all of this was and, and how people would have known him for being a great teacher. And, and, and it's interesting here, but even the religious people were like, well, he's, he's rabbi-ish and he's got a following of these people that are learning from him and if he's Jewish enough and rabbi enough and got a following enough like all of the other rabbis how in the world would he ever be in that house sitting down with the worst of the worst in society that's the mindset that religiosity in their day created he eats with those and drinks with those tax collectors and the sinners. Now, the tax collectors, you know, they, they rip people off. They were out to enrich themselves. No, nobody really liked them. But Jesus saw more than what society sees. He, he, he looked at Levi, and, and he saw a soul. He's like, hey, follow me. He saw a man that he could transform and use. Now, this is, we're going to contrast Jesus, who he is, why he came, his mission, the man, the mission, and even what he wants his followers, which would be the disciples and and us today, what he would want us to follow, what he would want us to learn, and what what he would want us to model. So this contrast of who he was, why he came, and what he was trying to teach the disciples, that is in contrast to what Judaism was, what it taught, and what, what it produced in its followers. So you had this, this, this contrast. This same proud spirit has gripped religious people down through the ages. They, they, they just, you know, people clergy or just, we'll just say religious people like the Pharisees and, and then the, the traditional people that just admired them and lived life in line with them. Today we have that same kind of people living amongst us in American culture and just in our culture where they, they look at people through the lens of their traditions rather than seeing people through the eyes of God. And so consequently, Jesus does not form, if they're Christians and they're doing that, Christ is not forming their associations. Their traditions, their religiosity forms their associations. So they associate with people that agree with them and and line up with them, and they really feel it's a disgrace to associate with people who do not. I've shared this story in the past, and maybe it's familiar, but I remember coming to the church years ago, early on a Sunday morning, and I pulled in, and, and I have a little routine where I drive, and I was kind of went through the back corner over there, and I was trying to make sure the basketball courts aren't too low so we don't hit them, and, you know, make sure the gates... I just have a little routine, and I, I saw a guy sleeping in the corner. And so I, I thought, well, that, that must have been a long night, you know? So I went around the back, and I got my typical... You know, a cup of coffee thing, and I got one and I walked over to him and I just kind of bent over and he was still asleep. And I just said, Hey, hey, hey. I said, How you doing? And he goes, Ah. Oh, huh. Are you gonna tell me I need to get out of here as well? And I said, No, no, no. I came to bring you a cup of coffee. It looks like you had a rough night sleeping out here in the church parking lot, man. And, and he was sleeping up against one of those parking stops, and people were starting to come in. And I thought, you know, you, you might want to wake up, like get, sit up, drink this cup of coffee, and don't look like one of those parking stops. It's just not a good thing. And he kind of looked at me, and he goes, you're not going to tell me to leave? And I go, no, I'm not going to tell you to leave. We actually want people to come. Most people aren't laying in the parking lot, but you are, and here's a cup of coffee, and whenever you want to get up, come on in, come on in. And he just looked at me. And I had no idea that that would begin, you know, a don't know, several year relationship with our church. I had no idea. I had no idea that that he would come and say, I just, I've got this phobic thing going on. I cannot sleep inside. I cannot, I just can't do it. I have to sleep outside. Was he the town drunk? Yeah. Did I know it? Eh, He smelled like it. He looked like it. But he had, he just had this like, there was a soul about the guy. And so before long, he, he, you know, during the, he loved our coffee. That brought him in. I must admit, coffee will bring them in. And so he just come in. Then he would start using our restrooms. Then here's the shower. And just all of that. And that would lead to Anthony giving his life to Jesus. And in one of the walls around here, we have a picture of me baptizing him. One of my favorite pictures. And I remember the day where they called us and they said, you know, Anthony doesn't want you to know it, but he's got some serious health stuff. He's not going to live much longer. And we were able just to to love him right to the the doorway. I remember the day that a couple of people from the local bar came over and said, we've got to do a service for Anthony. Okay, let's do a service for Anthony. And we decided... We've never done a funeral service on a Wednesday night, so it'll be like tonight, we're just going to have a funeral service for the town drunk that gave his life to Jesus Christ, and we baptized him now he's in heaven. Amen. That was one of the most fun services, man. We celebrated his life, and, and all, all of his friends are over here, like big eyes, and, and, and they just we had all these pictures of, of Anthony entwined in the family of God here, and just were able to show him how much we loved him. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what he was doing. And there's, there's a lot of joy con- connected to that. There's, there just is, there's, a, there's radical fulfillment in that. There is that challenge, though, within the fabric of our culture, that it's just, it could be just a very turned off posture to the Outside, if you are not, it's us for and no more kind of thing. If you're not formed and dressed like us and just walking like us, then just absolutely you don't fit in. As Christian, you know, Jesus commissioned us to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that He has commanded us. We can't do that living in a Christian bubble. We just can't do that. And we can't do that living in a Christian bubble and then criticizing and minim- minimizing those that aren't in our bubble. We just can't. Great Commission would never be fulfilled. I remember years ago, you know, Lori and I, we, we were in, in Europe and, and just traveling around and we had a chance to go to the Vatican and I can't remember if it was one of our missions trip. I can't remember what it was, but I just remember going to the Vatican. It was hot. And we got up in the morning and, and I remember, you know, just going, okay, let's, we're going to go check this whole place out. And, and I was, you know, dressed like I am right now. I had shorts and sandals and a nice shirt and everything. And so we got up there and you go through the line back then and, and, it, and it, it said, you know, no short pants for anybody, you know. And, and I'm like, ah, oh, what a bummer, you know, that's a bummer. But you could get these scarves and tie them around your legs. And I'd seen that in Israel and stuff. Now, I'm not wearing no goofy scarves around my leg. That just ain't me surfers don't put scarves on their legs. <laughs> so Lori's like, you know, my wife's pretty determined. She's like, I am going to go walk this. I paid for tour. I'm doing the tour. So she goes in. So I just start walking around, and I got behind a fence and gates. People walking. the gate. Like, ah, that looks like an official gate. I, no, they, they don't look official. I'll go through that gate. I end up finding this elevator, and it took me up to the very top of the Vatican. And I was just, I, I was just following people. They thought I was part of their group or something, and I looked maybe official or something. But as I came out, I, I I was in this at the very top, in the I forget what they call it, but the dome of the Vatican. There's this this walkway around it, and I'm like looking down at all of the people inside, you know, this this beautiful building, and and then there was another elevator, and when I went just got in that one, it looked official, and okay, I'm official. I went down that, and all of a sudden I was in the Vatican. I was inside, and when I looked out, I'm like, oh, you know, this is a really official, really intense setting, and I shouldn't be in here, but right then, I watched this group, and there was a, it was a Swedish tour group, and they were my people, you know, and and, and I'm like, look at all those blonde-haired people, you know, I, and I just walked right in the middle of them, and I, I just was agreeing with the tour guide, and they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and I, I got to see the whole, every corridor of the inside of the Vatican, I got to see, but right as I got towards the end, there were one of these, like, secret service looking guys, man, talking to the sleeve kind of guy. He, he sees me and then he got a couple of people and there are a couple of sisters and a couple of, you know, the collared and they really didn't like that I was in there in short pants. It was a big deal. And I just remember, I was trying to just understand the whole thing. I had never been here. You know, and I know we're in a big old building with the, the, the guy on the top, big hat, kiss the ring kind of stuff. But I'm at least thinking we're going to have a little bit of grace here. You follow me? Just they got a lot of Jesus on a cross around here, but I was just looking for a little bit in their heart. And I'm not saying that they can't be saved; they're not saved. But I want to see the love of Christ lived out. And I'm just going to tell you, in a very, you know, maybe I, I, I should know the rules a little bit better and follow the rules a lot better. But, man, was I ever turned off and looked down upon. And I'm a child of God. I really am. And I just, those things just kind of stick with me and help me in my clergy role, if you will. Never do something that would make someone feel like they are outside of the bounds of God's love, the bounds of God's grace. And so Jesus in verse 17, he says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I I didn't come to call the righteous those who see themselves as such like you religious folks. You guys got it all figured out. You don't have any needs. I came for sinners. I came to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so here, this is important. Now, again, setting up these parables, Jesus is talking to the religious people. The legalist. It's all about the rules and all about the regulation. And he goes, listen, you guys need to understand my mission. My mission in life is to those in need. You know, you might want to boil it down this way. Because of sin, the world is spiritually sick. It needs a spiritual healer. I am here to impart that spiritual healing. My mission is to needy sinners. I have what they need. I have what can meet their need. But they're missing it. As these religious leaders call into question, you know, the company that Jesus kept. They'll even begin to dissect them. Look at them. Look at those sinners. Look at how he's with those sinners, the tax collectors, all those sinners. And then they begin to go, it, it's almost like this. And why are they so happy? That's like where they're going next. Why are they so filled with, they're smiling. I can't believe they're smiling. And this is going to set up those parables again. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. So the question, why or how is it that John's disciples, and the disciples of the Pharisees, are fasting? Many believe that the question came because at that exact moment, Jesus is feasting with Levi and all these tax collector friends and the Pharisees and John's disciples, they were fasting at the same time. Now, the scriptures did command fasting, but only one day on the Day of Atonement, which was the National Day of Repentance and Forgiveness, outlined there in Leviticus chapter 16. But by the, 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 the time you come to, like Jesus' time, the Pharisees had decreed that godly people should fast twice a week on the second and fifth days, on Mondays and Thursdays. So today we would be able to eat. That would be nice on a Wednesday night. But tomorrow, no, 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 no. Definitely not on Monday. You've got to be fasting. The Pharisee's attitude derived from, among other things, the false assumption that, you know, true religion is solemn. True religion is, it's this, it's, very sober joyless affair an assumption that a lot of religious people hold even to this day follow our rules you got to be serious you got to be you got to be solemn you got to be sober you got to be humorless you know almost sad and and we see clergy this way we see you know christians this way i remember one time doing a funeral with um, another guy from another church and I was young and and the family had kind of come out of that church and that church where the robes and it was pretty formal and everything and 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 I I didn't I, I just you know I'm, I'm a young guy and I, I think I had to borrow a suit to do the funeral and and I showed up and the guy showed up in the suit and he had all this stuff with him and and he's like, "This is what we're going to do." And I remember, I was just so like, "Oh, okay." I was so nervous; I just didn't know what to do. And and, and he's like, the, 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 "When they open the doors, everyone's gonna be seated, and you and I are gonna walk in together. And and just follow me and do what I do." And, and okay. And so I'm I'm following the guy, and as we got to the front, I started seeing people that knew me. They're, hey, Lance, how you doing? So I stopped, and I'm like, "Hey, Lee," I you... you know, I'm talking to people and everything. And all of a sudden, he's up at the casket. He's doing all these. Moves and everything, and and he's looking at me, and he just looked back at me like he was so mad. Like I cannot believe you've desecrated this whole setting. You've, you, and he was he was red faced. He's looking at me. I'm like, oh, this is bad. You got a grieving family. You got a dead guy, and you got, and I'm gonna be next. You know, it just was bad. Everywhere around it was bad. It was just a bad deal. And I remember he got up and, and I'm first and you just sit here. And, and I was like, oh, and, and, and there was zero joy, none. And I just remember as I was sitting there, I'm like, Lord, what do I do? And you know what the Lord ministered in my heart? This guy is showing everybody who I'm not. You just get up and talk about who I am. Just smile when you do. There's <laughs> a little bit of smiling, you know, and just love on the people. We've all seen this. This, this, this idea, you know, the Pharisees, they would even, when they were when they're, when they're fasting, they would put, they would whiten their faces. Put the stuff on their face to make them look like it sucked their cheeks in. They put ashes on their head. They would dishevel their clothes. They wanted you to know that they were just going through all kinds of pain. And that's what religion is. You know, it's, just, it's, it's all sacrifice. There's no joy. It's serious, very serious stuff. They wouldn't even take a bath. And they just, they would just wanted to look as neglected as possible. You see, you can't be spiritual unless you're uncomfortable, That you see. They thought spirituality makes you do things you don't want to do and it keeps you from doing the things that you would want to do. So the religious folks, the religious establishment had kind of self-righteously put the question to Jesus. So Jesus answered them, as he always does so brilliantly. How can the guest of a bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will now, in the ancient Jewish wedding settings, the, the couple didn't really go out on a honeymoon when that they stuck around town. They stayed home for a week. They would open up their their house. They would have feasting. It would be a big celebration. It was, you know, probably one of the happiest weeks of their life. The bride and the groom were treated like a king and a queen, and they were attended by all of their chosen friends as as such. They were known as guests of the bridegroom. And their their guests were exempted from all the fasting through these rabbinical rules and whatnot. And for you and I, as believers today, on the other side of the cross, and the other side of the resurrection, the application is just amazingly encouraging. We're not just guests of the bridegroom, we are the bride of Christ. Amen. It speaks of the deepest intimacy that could be known between God and man. We actually have the Spirit of God, Romans 8 9. Therefore, think of the guests of a bridegroom and how joyous of an event it would be, and how they're just celebrating for a week and just so excited. And what we now, not just guests of a bridegroom, we are the bride of Christ. We should outshine as far as joy any attendance of any wedding that has ever happened. Christianity brings a perpetual joy to those who take it seriously and those who cultivate it. You know, we, we, we were studying through Acts chapter 2, and it's interesting. There was something about what was going on when the Spirit was poured out upon them that they were like, they're drunk. Could it have been that they were just so happy? That some were like, "Yeah, that's what wine does. Yeah, look at them, Oh, just so joyous and everything. 1 Peter 1.8, speaking of Jesus, Thou, though now you don't see him, yet believing you rejoice as believers with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. He's talking about a joy that we have as Christians. The blessing that we have that comes through believing Jesus is everything he claims to be right now. In my day, in your day, in your suffering, in your trial, which that whole book is about. It's a belief and a love for him as if he's right there next to us. And that produces a joy in us that is completely inexpressible. It's so wonderful and so deep we can't even express it. Now, that's what was going on with Jesus, his disciples, and those who were having their lives impacted by him. To where the religious people were going, how can they even be celebrating? And so religious people, we look at them and they, they, they look at the religious experience and it's so serious, it's so sober, that you shouldn't be smiling. There should be no joy about us if we're just falling in line with them. But then in contrast, Jesus is like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's, let's look at who he is, what he said, what his mission was, what he claimed to be and how that impacted people around him. It was joy. Where Later on, one of those that walked with him for three and a half years and would deny him would say, let me tell you about the joy that we have in the midst of even the worst storms of our life because we know he's with us. It's a joy in this relationship with him, this one that's so close to us, I can't even explain it. We can't even explain it. That's the difference. And I love Jesus' answer here, and then we'll get right to the parables, and you'll understand how it all ties in. How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with him? They cannot, so long as they have him with him. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Oh, there is coming a day to fast. There's coming a day to be serious and be sober, and, 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 and it's when the bridegroom will be taken away. And that's a real strong hint towards the cross. You want, to, you want to think about a day when it's like we should be serious? That day's a coming. And now we have the parable. Now you know what he has been confronted with. You know the vibe around him as it relates to the religious people observing him and and what's happening in his personal world with the disciples and those that have embraced him like Levi and others. And now, remember, Jesus is all about helping us understand. There will be those times when he looks at these Pharisees, these religious leaders, he's not real happy with them. But even when he rebukes them, I've, I've learned to read those red letters from the heart of Christ as grace. A wake-up call. They, they wouldn't hear the practical illustrations to help them see their failure. They just, they just, they just wouldn't. They just wouldn't get it. Wouldn't, they wouldn't open up their heart to it. And So there would come those times and he would be like very direct with them. But even then... More grace. Trying to wake them up. But here, I believe, speaking to the religious folks of his day, that could be from the Pharisee rejecting him, listen, to the apostles that are starting to open up their hearts to him. There is so much unpacking that needs to happen in the heart of these men. And this is part of it. Every day, You wake up with Jesus as one of his disciples, strap on some sandals, and get ready to learn. Every day. You will never have arrived until we get to the other side. We always talk about Peter. And from Pentecost to Acts chapter 10, from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 10, is 10 years. What happens in Acts chapter 10? It's the first time that Peter will walk into a Gentile's house. There's a lot of unpacking. Even the way that the Lord reveals the need for Peter to let go of some things in order to be effective in being used to preach the gospel to those outside of his world, his little Christian Jewish world now. He's asleep. A vision. A sheet. On the sheet. Unclean animals. Peter, rise and eat. Three times, not just once. The Lord could have went, he doesn't get it. We're done with this guy. No, not so, Lord. I can't eat that. I cannot eat what is common, what non-Jews don't eat, or what is unclean. I can't. And I won't. Three times. The grace of God, the continued grace of God, and the continued grace of God. How many of you are thankful for the continued grace of God? yeah. Woo. And, and, and even then, Peter, I, I, I know this. Look, as I'm working on you, I'm working on, on the first Gentiles that are going to be saved. There's going to be a, a knock at your door. The whole chapter starts off with the description of Cornelius, a devout man who prayed to God, gave alms. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and is like, Hey. God sees what you're doing and, and, and it, it like moves his heart. It honors God. He sees it. you got a good heart. But there's something that you, you just need to understand. You need to get your devout guy and God sees that and all, but you got, we've got more between you and God that needs to take place. So send some of your servants and, and, and you're in Caesarea, and send him south. It's about 70 miles, and there's going to be this guy. He's, he's, he's hanging out at a man's house by the name of Simon. He's easy to find. He's a tanner. and this He's, he's in Joppa. We know Joppa from the story of Jonah, and Joppa's the, the port that, you know, when they brought the cedars of Lebanon down to build the temple, that's the, the port in Joppa. And, and as you go there and we tour around there, there isn't there was a tanner in those days as to how all this stuff there, <laughs> there to this day. Excuse me. And, and, and there you're going to find this guy. And I love this whole, it's just the grace of God peeling back religiosity. The grace of God peeling back religiosity over and over and over. Three times this vision. God's working on the heart of the man that he wants to convert. The Gentile that he says, it's time. These two worlds, the religious world and the kingdom of my son, they've just been too too far apart for too long. We've got to... Knock, knock, knock at the door. Peter. Go down. You let them in. When they come... They say, "Uh, Peter, our master Cornelius sent us. He's a devout man. He's a really good guy. But he says that you, listen, you are to come and that you have a word for him. Peter doesn't hang out with Gentiles. But God was softening his heart and softening his heart and softening his heart and softening his heart and peeling back that religiosity for 10 years. And he said, okay, I'll go with you. And he went. And I love the way when he walks into their house, he says to them, you know I shouldn't even be in your house. I'm paraphrasing. You I shouldn't even be here. But this is what he said and I get goosebumps thinking about this because it's the heart of our God winning over one more religious guy. And that's me. That's what moves me. I shouldn't even be in your house, but God has taught me something. What man has called common and unclean. He connected the dots. I can't. God doesn't. God had won over Peter's heart. He had broken through that religiosity. And now here he is standing in. It's the equivalent to Jesus being in the house of Levi. And as as listen, it so blew the mind of this man Cornelius. Listen. Before Peter even said a word, he just, because God was at work in his heart, he's yet to be saved, but he sees this Jewish dude walk into his house. You understand this? And it, it's so, it, that act so impacted him that he fell on his face and he, and he tried to worship Peter. This is the heart of God on display through Peter. And it completely overwhelmed this Yet to be saved Gentile. And that's all Peter did is just like on his first sermon. Is he just, he just shared Jesus. And as he did, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his household. That is something to smile about. That is that religion can't do that, but our God, our God does. Now we're going to get to the parable. I have five minutes. <laughs> Jesus speaking to all of that. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Staring all of this religiosity in the face, he says, I've already claimed to be the Son of Man, a messianic title. The, I, I am the Messiah. I've already claimed to be God. I did, I'm doing miracles, evidencing that. I've been running around teaching on the heels of that. And I, I just want you to know my mission is to come and bring salvation to forgive sins. Okay? I just want to break it down to you in very simple terms. It's something new that's it he just wants all the religious people to go okay to something new God sent his son it's time it's been been years since Moses the law and and, and atonement and, and all of what you've done with that but now it's time for something new and so you're going to have to understand how this works. The new and the old don't work together. You just, you just, you, it just, it's not going to work together. Whenever I, I ever teach this, ever, since I think I've been in my early 20s, I just, the first thing I picture is my mother and, and her coming to me and saying, Lance? I've fixed your jeans. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't do that. And she just, I was a little guy, and I just would just, I was hard on my jeans, and I ripped the knee. I ripped the knee. The first things to go were the knees. What's mom do? Patch. And they look cool until she washed them. And then it's just even worse. Because the the, the old fabric is going to be basically... It's going to be affected by that whole wash very different than the new. The new is going to shrink up more and it pulls away. And she doesn't say, just keep wearing them. And I'm like, mom, this doesn't work. My friends, are, they make fun of me. Now you know why I wear shorts. <laughs> I was traumatized as a kid. But we understand this, we, we, we get this. Jesus says, this old system. Is old and it's it, it's flawed, it served its purpose. I'm here to do something new. The new fabric which Jesus brings cannot be interwoven with the tired fibers of the old religious system. It's just gonna tear apart. And then he gives the second parable, which is even a more powerful illustration. No one puts new wine into old wine sins, or else the The new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Simon the Tanner would have known something about wineskins. Skins Skins of goats, they have them tanned. They form them into wineskins that would hold wine. Their elasticity and the strength would allow the fermenting of the, the new wine to expand. After some years, those, those wineskins could become less, less flexible. They can become brittle. They can become hard. You put new wine in the old wineskin, and it is not going to be, it's not going to work. It's not going to function. It's going to explode. It's inflexible. It's going to, it's both the wineskin and the new wine that you would put in that old wineskin would be lost. The new life that Jesus brings is an expanding life. The spiritual life, the eternal life, is an everyday developing, growing, expanding life of God. Think of the initial transformation, then just think of Him, what He pours into us the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, you know, just His peace. I got a call this afternoon. Another um, another brother David de la Cueva here. His parents have been around, but he, he grew up in the church and they're more Spanish-speaking. They came here a lot, but uh, his mother woke up this morning and and David's father was 81 years old, laying next to her, and he he was in heaven. And so David had just, just gotten married and 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 was distraught, called the church, Pastor Jay, and Lisa, people ran over there, and I told Jay as he was going over, I go, call me as soon as you get there. And, and just that, that opportunity to bring the hope of heaven into the conversation and to just all the scriptures that we know should be brought in and bringing that in and to see the life of God expand the hope of God in the hearts of God's people. They were open to it. There's a freshness of the Holy Spirit as we were talking and, and and just, you know, you could just sense heaven amongst us, if you will. It was just a, a beautiful time, beautiful time of prayer and, and discussion of, of God's word. This is important. We're, we're out of time. I've got more to say, but... the only thing they could really do to make an old wineskin continue to have life in use was to apply oil to it. That's it. That's it. And oil is a representation in Scripture of the Holy Spirit. And man... As I'm getting older, you better pray that I just keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'll just put it on me, okay? If I, you walk into here one day and I got some weird robe on and a big hat and I got some attitude. And I'm like, hey, you know, it, I mean, you, you know what rigidity looks like. You know what inflexibility looks like. You don't like it. I don't like it. And as it relates to the bride of Christ, as it relates to the body of Christ, where the Spirit of God is at work, there must be flexibility. Freshness. And I know, I mean, I joke about it, I jest about it, but I'm I'm giving these little friendly, I love you nudges, where I'm like, if you always sit in the same seat. I don't know. Some of you are sitting in the same seat. I got that that, that. that doesn't set any rigidity in you. Maybe not. But for some people, that could be a thing. And this is the service I come to. That could be another thing. And this is the church. And all of a sudden, we've got the this is how you do it formed in our mind. And, and we've got to be careful because we can form in our own culture of Christianity uh, us four and no more. This is how we do it. We go to this service. We talk to these people. We do these things. And 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 what if the Holy Spirit was to just go, I want you to go to a different service and sit in a different church and talk to different people? No. No. Do you know that the majority of our church, even with me on Sunday morning, go, I think we need to be together more. COVID is so, I'm so over COVID. Please start coming around. That... Do you know how much rigidity there is for most of those people to not be here tonight? Seriously. No. That can settle into any one of us. This is when I go. This is who I hang out with. This is what I do. Now, when people begin to become that inflexible with the Holy Spirit, what kind of conflict are you going to have in the family of God when people are that way? A lot. A lot. Tell them they're wrong, conflict. Tell them to change, conflict. Tell them they can't sit where they should sit, they want to sit, conflict. Tell them just try and correct them, conflict. If they're inflexible with the Holy Spirit, they are definitely going to be inflexible with any any human being. And when a church allows that to happen and doesn't have leadership that pushes and compels and passionately calls, us back to the main thing which is Jesus and the freshness that he brings into our life that place is going to become old wineskinny a church that's become old wineskinny is just filled up with old wineskins this is the way we've always done it this is the way we're going to do it I don't know what the Lord has for us in the future I just want it to be him I don't. I don't. I, 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 as long as we're teaching the Word of God and we're lining up with the Word of God, He is going to continue. Remember, we we just we just walked through what the early church was. All of those just you know, this praying group and this group that was focusing on the Word of God. Remember that and the fellowship, but fellowship with Christ, fellowship with one another, all of that on Sunday, and and just the communion and. the All of what we taught on Sunday was for that one moment where we're like, why would the Lord not add to that? Why would he not bless that? Don't we want to be something that God blesses, something that God honors, something that brings glory to him? And the Holy Spirit wants to do fresh things in us. Why would we not want to? I understand we get older, we get tireder, we get achier and crankier, and I get all all that. I'm I was cranky once last year. It's just, I get it. (laughs) But I would rather be filled with joy and deal with the aches and pains that come with aging than to deal with all of that and not have the joy of the Lord. Be my strength. Be our strength. And I pray that there would be a continued freshness of the spirit of God among this place, leading us and guiding us and and that we wouldn't be so rigid in opinions and rigid in our ways. You know, if, if, if when we started the book of Acts, one of the things I said, it was a bold thing to say. I'm like, hey, all of your preconceived ideas of who you are in the body of Christ, who we're supposed to be, your giftings and all you do. Leave it at the door. Just take a, take a step of faith with the Holy Spirit over this season in the book of Acts. Just see if he wants to do something new with you. You know how hard that is for Christians that have walked with the Lord for a period of a while to do that? It's tough. It takes faith. It takes real faith. But it also takes pliability. It takes flexibility. the parable of the cloth and the parable of the wineskin. Really wouldn't understand it unless we had the background. Now we've got the background. Hopefully you've got some good discussion points. Next week we will have good, healthy round table discussions. Unless you're an old wineskin, you won't be there. (laughs) Let's all (laughs) stand. Thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy you and enjoy one another, enjoy your word, enjoy this life that you have for us. And we know that certainly the life to come will be filled with joy, something inexpressible. Thank you for those that have leaned in tonight and have allowed you to speak to their hearts, whether here, outside, online. Thank you for the continued opportunity that we have to um, Be the body of Christ. Thank you for being with David and his family as they're dealing with grief today. Continue to bring them comfort, we pray. Um, Lord, we also lift up our brother Kevin, who's healing at home now, Kevin Coven. I know he's probably listening. Bless him and Diane. Continue to heal him. Get him on his feet, Lord, we pray. Thank you for um, just the work that you're doing in the lives of those that have cried out to you, those, those in need, Lord, physical, emotional, financial, you are such a good God. And if you're here again tonight and you're not a believer, as Jesus said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call out to him tonight. Ask him to save you. Ask him to come into your life and to, to fill you with his spirit. We love you, Lord. May we have a blast as we go through these parables this summer. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Love you. See you soon.